Chapter Seven of Some Everyday Folk and Dawn by Miles Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Little Town of Nunoon. The little town, situated where away it does not particularly matter, and whose name is a palindrome, is one of the oldest and most old-fashioned in Australia. Less than three dozen miles per road, and not many more minutes by train from the greatest city in the southern hemisphere, yet many of its native population are more unpolished in appearance than the bushwhackers from beyond Burke, the Cooper, and the Far Paru. It is an agricultural region, and this, in some measure, accounts for the slouching appearance of its people. Men cannot wrest a first-hand living from the soil, and at the same time cultivate a Piccadilly clubland style and air. It is a valley of small holdings, being divided into farms and orchards, varying in size from several to two or three hundred acres. Many grants were apportioned there in the early days. Representatives of the original families in some instances still hold portions of them, and the stationary population has drifted into a tiny world of their own, and for want of new blood have ideas caked down like most of the ground, and evinced in many little characteristics distinct from the general run of the people of the state. Though they were, when I knew them, possessed of the usual human failings in an average degree, they were for the most part a splendid class of population, honest, industrious producers, who, in Grandma Clay's words, keep the world going. There was only a small percentage of idlers and parasites among them, but they did duty with a very small-minded, unprogressive set of ideas. There is a place in New South Wales named Grabben Gullen, where the best potatoes in the world are grown, Great solid flowery beauties, weighing two pounds of Wa du Pois, are but ordinary specimens in this locality, and the allegorical bush statement for illustrating their uncommon size has it that they grow under the fences and trip the horses as they travel the lanes between the paddocks. Similarly, to explain the wonderful growth of vegetation in the fertile valley of Tumut, its inhabitants assure travellers that pumpkin and melon vines grow so rapidly there that the pumpkins and melons are worn out in being dragged after them. Now, as I strolled around the lanes of Nanoon, I felt the old slow ways, like grabbing gullen potatoes, protruding to stifle one's mental flights. But there was nothing representative of the tumult pumpkin and melon vines to wear one out in a rush of progress. The land was rich and beautiful, and in as genial and salubrious a climate as the heart of the most exacting could desire but the residents had drifted into unenterprising methods of existence, and progress had stopped dead at the foot of the great dividing range. The great road winding over it bore the mark of the convicts, and other traces of their solid workmanship were to be found in occasional buildings within a radius of twenty miles, but their day had passed as that of the bullock dray and mail coach, superseded by the haughty passenger mail and giant two-engined goods trains while for quicker communication with the city than these afforded, the West depended upon the telegraph wires. In days gone by, the swells had patronised Nunoon as a weekend resort, and some of their homes were now used as boarding-houses, while their one-time occupants had other tenement, and their successors patronised the cooler altitudes farther up the Blue Mountains, or had followed the governor to Mossvale. Once upon a time, Nunoon had rushed into an elaborate, unbalanced water-scheme and had lighted itself with electricity. To do this, it had been forced to borrow heavily, so that now all the rates went to the usurer, and no means were available for current affairs. 
the sanitation was condemned and the streets and roads for miles as far as the municipality extended were a disgrace to it exceedingly level they possessed characteristics of some of the best thoroughfares but the wheelways were formed of round river stones which neither powdered nor set and to drive along them was cruel to horses ruinous to vehicles and as trying on the nerves of travellers as crossing a stony stream-bed there seemed to be nothing possible in the matter but to abuse the municipal council as numbskulls and crawlers and this was done on every hand with unfailing enthusiasm though so near the metropolis nanoon was less in touch with it than many western towns in most respects was a veritable great-grandmother for stagnation and bucolic rusticity and in individuality suggested one of the little quiet eddies near the emptying of a stream and which being called into existence by a backflow contains no current but while thus falling to the rear in the ranks of some departments of progress the little town retained a certain degree of importance as one of the busiest railway centres in the state and its engine sheds were the home of many locomotives here they were cold cleaned and oiled ere taking their stiff two-engine haul over the mountains to the wide straight pastoral and wheat growing west and their calling and rumbling made cheery music all the year round excepting a short space on sundays while at night as they climbed the crests of the mountain spurs every time they fired the red light belching from their engine doors could be seen for miles down the valley thus nanoon's train service was excellent and a great percentage of the town population consisted of railway employees what is the typical australian girl is the subject frequently discussed to find her it is necessary to study those reared in the unbroken bush those who are strangers to town life and its influences city girls are more cosmopolitan sydney girls are frequently mistaken for new yorkers while bostonian ladies are as often claimed to be englishwomen and it is only the bush-reared girl at home with horse gun and stock-whip able to bake the family bread make her own dresses take her brother's or father's place out of doors in an emergency while at the same time competent to grace a drawing-room and show herself conversant with the poets who can rightfully lay claim to be more typically australia's than any other country's daughter of course the city australians are australians too australia is the land they put down as theirs on the census paper she is their native land but ah their country has never opened her treasure troves to them as to those with sympathetic and appreciative understanding of her characteristics and many of them are as hazy as a foreigner as to whether it is the kookaburra that laughs and the mopoke that calls or the other way about they are incapable of completely enjoying the full heat of noonday summer sun on the plains and the evening haze stealing across the gullies does not mean all it should the exquisite rapturous enjoyment of the odour of the endless bushland when dimly lit by the blazing southern stars or the companionship of a sure-footed nag taking the lead around stony sidelings or the music of his hoof-beats echoing across the ridges as he carries a dear one home at close of day are all in a magic storehouse which may never be entered by the goths who attempt to measure this unique and wonderful land by any standard save its own a standard made by those whose love of it engendered by heredity or close companionship has fired their blood these observations lead up to the fact that nanoon folk boasted their own individuality smacking somewhat of town and country and yet of neither 
some of the older ones patronised the flowing beards and sartorial styles all the go way up in ironbark yet if put out back would have been as much new chums as city people and were wont to regard honest unvarnished statements of bush happenings as snake yarns while the youths of these parts combined the appearance of the far bush yokel and the city larrikin and were to be seen following the plough with cigarettes in their mouths the small holdings were cut into smaller paddocks the style of fence mostly patronised being two or three strands of savage barbed wire stretched from post to post this insufficient separation of stock was made adequate by the cattle themselves carrying the remainder of the white man's burden of fencing around their necks in the form of a hampering yoke made of a forked tree limb with a piece of plain fencing wire to close the open ends this prevented them pushing between the wires and it was a pathetically ludicrous sight to see the calves at a very tender age turned out an exact replica of their elders all the places opened onto the roads like streets and to go across country was a sore ordeal as one had to uncomfortably cross roughly upturned cropland and every few hundred yards roll under a line of barbed wire about a foot from the ground at the risk of reefing one's clothes and the certainty of dishevelment to walk out on the main roads and stumble over the loose stones ankle-deep in the dust was torture some averred they had known no repairs for ten years and that they were as good as they were because to have been worse was impossible walking in this case being no pleasure i bethought me of riding for gentle exercise and inquired of grandma clay the possibilities in that respect ride there ain't nothing to ride in this district only great elephant draughts or little titty ponies the size of dogs she said with unlimited scorn i never seen such crawlers they go about in them poking little sulkies and even the men can't ride in my young days if a feller couldn't ride a buck jumper the girls wouldn't look at him and yet down here at one of the shows last year in the prize for the hunters the horses had to be all rode by one man there wasn't another young feller in the district fit to take a blessed moke over a fence i felt like going out and tackling it myself i was that disgusted i never was a advocate for this great riding that racks people's insides out and cripples them there ain't a bit of necessity for it but there is reason in everything and they're going to the other extreme and we'll have to be carried out on feather beds in an ambulance soon if they keep going on as they are there's nothing as good as it was in the old days as for a woman riding here all the town will go out to gape like she was something in the travelling show business i used to ride when i come down here first that was sixteen year ago but everyone asked me such questions and looked at me like a punch and judy show that i got sick of it i rode into trashes at the store there one day and when i was coming out he says will you have a chair to get on and as he didn't seem to be man enough to sling me on i said i supposed so he goes for one of them tallest chairs it would be as easy to get on the horse as it and i says thanks i'm not riding an elephant one of them little chairs would do but even that didn't seem to contend him he put it high on the pavement and put the horse in the gutter then instead of putting the reins over the horse's head proper he left them on the hook and with both hands and all his might he holds the beast short by them in front of its jaw like as it was the wildest bull from the bogongs the idiot supposing the beast was flash and pulled away from him where would i be without the reins that about finished me i was sick of it as i could not have believed any man 
even out of a asylum could be so simple about putting a person on a horse for this kind of exercise there seemed no promising outlet and i was put to it to think of some other as grandma said with few exceptions the only horses in the district were draughts and ponies every effect has a cause and the reason of this was that these big horses were the only ones properly adapted to agriculture and the smallness of the holdings did not admit of hacks being kept for mere pleasure so the cheapest knockabout horse to maintain was a pony as not only did it take less fodder and served for the little saddle use of this place but tethered to a sulky took the wives and children abroad it was the land of sulkies made in all sizes to fit the pony that had to draw them and of quality in accordance with the purse that paid for them and a pair of horses and a buggy was a rare sight andrew suggested that i should go rowing and glowingly recommended a little two-man craft named the alice and as i could row well in my young days i determined to test her capacity by going upstream very gently as my time was unlimited and my strength painfully the reverse it was a crisp day towards the end of april so i was feeling brisker than usual and the alice was deserving of her good reputation the nanoon was one of the noblest and most beautiful streams in the state and above the substantial and unique old bridge its deep calm waters stretched for about two miles as straight as a ribbon in a reach made historic because it has been the race-course of some of the greatest sculling matches the world has known orange and willow trees were reflected in the clear depths of the rippleless flow and lured by its beauty the responsiveness of my craft and an unusual cheerfulness i foolishly overdid my strength i was thinking of dawn her girlish confidence regarding the desire of her hot young heart had so appealed to me that i was exercised to discover a suitable night for this and not a career i felt was the needful element to complete her life and anchor her restless girlish energy to tell her so however would ruin all time must be held till the appearance of the hero of the romance i intended to shape with this end in view i thought of recommending her grandma to let her voice be trained two years at the very least would thus be gained and if properly floated and advertised in the matrimonial field what may not be accomplished in that time by a beautiful and vivacious girl of eighteen or nineteen i was recalled from such speculations by finding that it was beyond me to row another stroke and i was in a fix a slight wind turned the boat and she drifted on to a fallen tree a little below the surface and though not upsetting stuck there and was too much for me to get off at that time of the year except very occasionally the river was free from boaters and the fishers who told of the fish that used to be got there in other times so there was nothing to do but wait until my absence caused anxiety when someone would surely come after me not a very alarming plight if one were well but i felt one of my old cruel attacks was at hand which was not encouraging no one was within sight but in case there should be a ploughman over a rise within hearing i cooed long and well my voice had been trained i cooed three times allowing an interval to relapse and then settled into the bottom of the boat to await developments soon i was disturbed by the plunk plunk of a swimmer and saw a young man approaching by strong rapid strokes it is strange how hard it is to recognize anyone when only their face is above water and one meets them in an unexpected place 
and though this face seemed familiar there was nothing unusual in that as i knew so many theatre patrons faces in a half fashion my rescuer having ascertained the simple nature of my dilemma and easily gaining the boat by reason of the log exclaimed why it's never you what on earth are you doing here and i responded ernest breslaw it's never you what are you doing here i'm stuck on this log and i've come to get you off it he laughed yes but otherwise this may be a suitable cove for a damaged hull but what can a newly launched cruiser like you be doing here i'm in training and was just taking a plunge it's first class he said enthusiastically and looking at his splendid muscles enough to delight the eye of even such a connoisseur in physique as myself and well displayed by a neat bathing suit there was no need to inquire for what he was in training twas no drivelling pen and ink examination such as i could have passed myself but something needing a greek statue's strength of thew are you feeling ill he considerately inquired and as i assured him to the contrary though i was feeling far from normal he put me out on the bank while he rode upstream for his clothes and returned to take me home having encased himself in some serviceable tweeds and a blue guernsey he rolled me in his coat ere beginning to demolish the homeward mile an infinitesimal bagatelle to such a magnificent pair of arms i enjoyed the play of the broad shoulders and ruddy cheeks and did not talk neither did he he was an athlete not a conversationalist while i was a conversationalist lacking sufficient athletic strength to keep up my reputation just then it was very silly of you to come out alone or attempt to row in your state of health it might have been your death he presently remarked in a grandfatherly style where are you putting up at clay's i know the old place with the boats he replied as the alice whizzed along i was aching for diversion i said in excuse for the rashness of my act well i can take you for a pull now i'll be here for a few weeks will you come to-morrow afternoon would three o'clock suit you he inquired as he moored the scenery is magnificent farther up the river yes if i'm not here at three o'clock you'll know that i'm not able to come you are very good ernest to waste time with me i'm only too proud to be able to row you about and expend a little despised brute force in returning all the entertainment with brains in it you have given me in the past yes at the cost of anything under seven shillings and sixpence an evening am i to pay you that for rowing me put it in the hospital box he said with a laugh that displayed his strong white teeth between his firm bold lips he was altogether a sight that was more than good in my eyes i found i was not strong enough to spring ashore but young breslaw managed that and my transit up the steep bank to the house with an ease and gentleness so dear to a woman's heart that the strength to accomplish it is the secret of an athlete being in ninety per cent of cases a woman's ideal oh i say as he was leaving me at the gate if you mention me speak of me as r ernest as i've dropped the breslaw where i'm staying i don't want wind of my being here to get into the papers i'm practising in the dark as i'd like to give some of the cracks a surprise licking very well i'm under an alias too so please don't forget to all except a few theatre patrons i'm as dead as ditchwater 
but someone might recognise the old name, and it would be very unpleasant. Right ho, tomorrow at three, then, I'll give you a pull, he said, doffing his cap from his heavy, ruddy locks, now drying into waves and gleaming a rival hue in the setting sun, as he bounded down the bank and made his way along the river edge to the bridge, as his place of sojourn was farther up than Clay's and on the other side. The excitement of thus meeting him had somewhat revived me, for here at once, as though in response to my wish, was a fitting night to play a leading role with my young lady, the desire for whose well-being had taken grip of me. For her sweet sake, and the sake of the fragrant manliness of the stalwart and deserving knight, I straightway resolved to enter the thankless and precarious business of matchmaking, one in which I had not one iota of experience, but as women have to ace marriage, domesticity, and mostly all the issues of life assigned them, without training, I did not give up heart. As a first effort, I determined that dawn should chaperone me when I went for my row on the morrow, as I looked at the sun sinking behind the blue hills and shedding a wonderfully mellow light over the broad valley, I thought of my own life, in which there had been none to pull a heart-easing string, and the bitterness of those to whom that for which they had fought has been won so late as to be Dead Sea fruit took possession of me. The doctors had several long and fee-inspiring terms for my malady, but I knew it to be an old-fashioned ailment known as heartbreak the result of disappointment, want of affection, and overwork. The old bitterness gripped the organ of life then. It brought me to my knees. I tried to call out, but it was unavailing, sharp, fiendish pain, and then oblivion. End of chapter 7